Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Scott. Good day to you, sir. How are you? Good day to you, sir. I am well. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, perfect. Well, here we are. We are on to the second part of our very lengthy retrospective on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Now, we are on to... Well, I think we're going to get into it. This is a, I don't want to know, don't necessarily know if I want to use the term controversial, but this is definitely an outlier in the series for a number of different reasons. Um, but before we get into it, I think it's very important that for this discussion, we need to take ourselves all the way back to 1985 and really look at this episode or this film with the idea that the sequels beyond this movie do not exist. When this was released, there was the original Elm Street, and this was the follow-up. So we have to take everything else out of the out, you know, out of our minds. And I know that's very difficult to do, given that there are nine movies in this franchise. Michael, the first thing I'll ask you, of course, is you know, when did a Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, Freddy's Revenge, come on your radar? Well, like I mentioned last episode, this was actually the first one I saw. Uh, it came on my radar. Probably when it came in the theaters, because, you know, I probably saw like the newspaper ads for it and we were my family would go to movies every week. But I saw it when it first came out on video. That was when I actually finally broke my parents down and got them to rent it. Uh, so it would have been, you know, probably 1986. I, I didn't look up when exactly it came out on video, but it took a lot longer back then for movies to come out on home video. So it probably would have been sometime in 86 that I saw it. You know, it was funny because this morning... I was really racking my brain and I cannot for the life of me, and it could be because it's been 30 plus years, I could not for the life of me remember the first time I saw this film. I, I genuinely don't know if I actually saw part three first and then this movie, like, you know, your mind will play tricks on you and, you know, memories of a seven, eight or nine year old are, are obviously going to be very cloudy. So I don't genuinely remember First time I've seen it, but I do remember seeing it a few times when I was a kid. And I remember in particular, I was staying the night at a friend's house and we were watching this movie and my friend's dad came in the room during the scene in which Grady meets his demise and promptly stopped the tape, uh, stopped the VCR, ripped the tape out. And we're not exactly sure whatever happened to that copy of Elm Street 2. But just it's just funny, <laughs> the, the little memories that, that are, you, you know, you, you sort of invoke. And so, But I don't recall that being the first time that I watched the movie. To talk about this film is to understand, you know, we didn't mention it in the last episode, but there's an amazing documentary that came out in 2010 called Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, which I know you've seen probably multiple times, correct? Yes, I have. Yeah, I think it's currently available on Shutter right now. So I watched, I was watching parts of that over the week. I've seen it 10 or 12 times. I think it's one of the most comprehensive documentaries on the subject matter that's ever been put out. But I, I use that as a, sort of a, a bit of a research template or a research tool or resource, if you will. When looking at how successful the first Nightmare on Elm Street film was, it was inevitable that they were going to make a sequel. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, you know, Robert Shea had, had basically leveraged the new, new Line Cinema Company to the point where, from what I've been able to figure out, you know, he only made a million or two dollars off this $57 million haul the first movie made, but he did walk away with the rights to the character. So getting into this, do you find it interesting that Robert Shea, well, it's not it's no surprise that they would move forward with a sequel, 
but they decided to go in a completely different direction and not include Wes Craven. Your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, on one hand, I kind of think it, it, it makes sense because really, who was Craven at that point? You know, we, we talked about that last episode that he'd just come off of the god-awful Hills Have Eyes Part 2. He'd really only had a couple of cult hits. He hadn't had, other than, I guess, arguably Swamp Thing was probably his biggest box office success at that point. So it's like, Shay, I know, considered Nightmare on Elm Street as much his movie as it was Craven's. And say what you will about Bob Shay, but the man knew when he had a hit on his hands. So it does make sense to turn around. And especially given that Craven didn't really want a sequel. He didn't want to have anything to do with a sequel. So I think it made sense. I think that because it was such a quick turnaround on it, we maybe, you know, when we'll get into that, we maybe got some more interesting things going on in that movie than we would have normally. But I, I think it makes sense. And, and I don't think that you can really just give Wes Craven a Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, Bob Shea was as integral into making that movie. I kind of consider them co-parents of that that film and particularly the franchise. No, I agree with you on that one. So let's get into what, what were the established rules of the original Nightmare on Elm Street? By my calculations, it was that Freddy could, you know, if he killed you in your dreams, you died in real life. And that it was possible for items from your dream to be pulled into reality and, in fact, Freddy to be brought into reality. Anything you want to add to the established rules that were that were put forth in the first film? I think the other big one is that he is killing the children of Elm Street, not that he's just attached to Springwood or kids in general. Like in the first movie, it makes it pretty clear. He's specifically targeting the children of the parents that killed him. And and I think that's a, a pretty big rule as well. Screenwriter David Chaskin penned a screenplay that basically took most of those established rules and threw them out the window. He basically wanted to figure out a way to bring Freddy into the real life through the use of, a, of an avatar, if you will, in the case of the character of Jesse. What do you think about that decision? You know, it's it's like you said, we've got to put ourselves in the mindset of 1985, right? Because every sequel to every movie changes the rules in some way. That's what sequels do. So I think in 1985, it was actually kind of a clever decision. It was a it was an interesting choice to take this from sort of this dream monster boogeyman to more of a exorcist style possession story. Because that's what we've really got here is sort of an exorcist style possession story. And one of the things that I think works really well for that is you know, Nightmare on Elm Street has to varying degrees as a series done a, an interesting job of sort of illustrating mental health issues and that Freddy exacerbates or represents mental health issues. And I actually think that's really clear here because Jesse's behaviors are consistent with, you know, I'm not a mental health expert, but I have had to deal with it both personally and professionally. Jesse's behaviors are very consistent with somebody who's having a schizophrenic break. You know, it starts kind of slowly and then builds worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I actually think that we can talk about whether the movie's fully successful at it. But I think there's some really 
interesting choices made here that could not have happened later on in the series. It's only because all of those rules weren't necessarily set in stone yet that some of this stuff could happen. Become, you know, clear. They didn't know what they had on their hands just yet. I mean, what they did, you know, with a sequel here is really set it in the same world, but don't they besides bringing Freddy back and the house, there's really no connective tissue between the two films. I mean, you have a kind of a throwaway line that it's five years after the events. You know, the, the only reference to Nancy in the film is, a, you know, a quick exposition diary read, if you will. So I kind of I, I kind of I do agree with you that I think this was an interesting idea to to take this in a completely different direction. And we'll we'll get into whether or not we think that works. But let's get into Let's just talk a little bit about, you know, Wes Craven is not brought on board here. He is he is not even asked to participate in this. Like we mentioned, David Chaskin is given the sole screenwriting credit. And we're going to get into his screenplay in just a little bit. But they went with Jack Shoulder as the director, who was an in-house director, if you will. He had done some work for Bob Shea in the past. How familiar are you with Jack Shoulder's work post or pre Elm Street 2, post Elm Street 2? Pretty familiar. I actually think Jack Shoulder is a, a, a very solid director. He directed one of, I think, just, just post this, he directed one of what I think is one of the really uh, underseen, solid 80s horror movies, horror sci-fi combination called The Hidden with Kyle MacLachlan. Have you ever seen that one, Dana? Uh, I actually haven't. I'm, I'm very familiar with it, but I have not seen it. It's really terrific. It's really an exciting, fun kind of action horror sci-fi hybrid. He had just before this, he had directed a movie called Alone in the Dark, which I also think is is pretty good for what it is. He, you know, didn't really have the career that I kind of thought he was going to have. And I will admit, I don't think necessarily his work here on Nightmare 2 is his best work by any means. He seems to be from from what I've what I've learned about his work and you know I've watched some some clips from Alone in the Dark and of course I've I've seen Wishmaster 2 Evil Never Dies. Thank you Adam Risky for the recommendation. He seems to be a very technically proficient director, you know, or as you use as you to coin a phrase that you would use a very efficient director. I think he gets the shots that he needs and he's on to the next one. Like I I think he's a pretty solid journeyman director. Would you agree? Yeah, I think The Hidden is really the only movie of his where he displays a sort of an an auteurist sense like the hidden has some really interesting shots and stuff like that. But for the most part, and if you look at his filmography, you know, he ended up doing a lot of TV work and, and, and people that have listened before know I have nothing but the utmost respect for TV directors because they, they are under incredible pressure, but that's exactly the type of director that becomes a good TV director is efficient, knows what he needs, gets his shots, gets the hell out makes his call sheets for the day and stays under budget so that everybody goes home happy. And that's totally what Jack Shoulder is. Before we get into the casting, um, there's no way for us to just, I think, put this off. I think there is a, this this film, I mean, I was going to use a headline here, you know, Cracked.com listed this uh, number one as the five most un- unintentionally gay horror movies. So there's been a lot of discussion about the gay subtext that is you know, throughout this film. And I'll admit as obviously as a child, I didn't pick up on this, but this is, you know, this is interesting. I bring this up because you have Jack Shoulder, the director being interviewed saying he had no idea 
And you have David Chaskin, the writer, saying, oh, this was completely deliberate. So I think we should just jump right into this discussion first, and then we'll get into the casting because we have to kind of talk about this when and then roll into the cast of the film. So your thoughts on the the ongoing discussion about the homosexual or gay subtext of this film? Well, it is really interesting because I actually watched for this uh, and we mentioned this the last episode there is a a pretty pretty good documentary called scream queen uh and we'll we'll kind of talk a little bit more when we get to the casting but it is interesting because chaskin for a long time actually denied that it was intentional and basically said that it was the actors that brought it to the table and shoulder has still been kind of like i had no idea you know and well most of the actors seem to be like no it's it's pretty obvious like robert rustler in that documentary is just like come on man it was on the page like i knew when i signed on what this movie was gonna be it's there i i think it's definitely there i think it's maybe and it should you know we should note we're two straight cis white men so we might not be the best voices to comment on this i still sort of pulled more of a a a mental health component out of it than I did a gay allegory out of it, but it's certainly there. I mean, it's certainly, if you're looking for it, you're going to find it. No question about that. I'll recommend the Scream Queen documentary, which is also showing, uh, also streaming on Shutter right now. Let's get into the cast of this film, if we will. Mark Patton. Now, this is, it's used, this is kind of an about face. Typically, horror movies have a leading lady. In this case, we have a leading gentleman in the role of Jesse Walsh. How did you think he did in this film? I will start by saying I think he is, uh, I think he's terrific in the movie. I'm going to agree completely. I actually, like I said, this is one of the ones that I hadn't seen in decades uh, because I just don't remember really liking it all that much. And what really impressed me watching it this time was he's really good. Like, he is by far and away, I think, the reason to watch the movie. He sells both being this happy sort of go-lucky young teen who then descends into, for a variety of reasons, you know, whatever allegory you want to attach, but essentially descends into madness and has a, has a complete breakdown because of it. it and he sells that every single step of the way he he's 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 really good i don't want to get too deep in the weeds you know watch the scream queen documentary but given everything that happened to him and both because of his choices and and things that just happened to him outside of his control i really do think we kind of lost a lot of legitimately good performances from mark Patton. Because he's really good in this. And and that's one thing that really struck me when I was watching this this morning. And I, I was saying to myself, this movie really, for its time period, 485, when we are at the height of slasher movie, you know, the slasher movie craze, this has some of the best performances that I've seen in a movie that falls into that category. And I was really kind of jaw on the floor watching Patton in a lot of these scenes going, this is, this guy's really good and he is really selling it and it is really believable. And I agree with what you said. Like, it's a shame that, you know, for, for whatever reasons, you know, his career didn't develop into something, you know, far greater than, than what it did. And, uh, Mark, if you're listening, Mike and I think you're terrific. (laughs) Love to have you on the show sometime. There's a scene where he's, you know, he's talking to Kim Myers' character, and he's got it's after. If I remember right, it's after 
Grady's dead and, and he's got all the blood on his hands and just the way he's cr- it, it reminded me actually this is going to be a weird leap but it reminded me a lot of Stallone's monologue at the end of First Blood the very it just it hit me in a very similar way you know the and I can't I can't find his legs and he's doing kind of the same thing where he's like and I've got all this blood on my hands and and it just was really affecting for me I, I i did not see that coming when i put this in to rewatch this movie kim myers as lisa again this movie does flip the script I, I i think when i was watching it this morning i was i think as a first time viewer you may think that you know you may not realize that jesse is the protagonist of the story because the door opens up and there's just this beautiful young lady and i'm like oh okay she must be you know, our protagonist, because traditional horror movie tropes state that, you know, it's it's a female that usually, you know, leads the story. She's great in the movie. I, I, I'm i just I mean, I'm just giving praise for her performance as well. And much like you said, it's a shame we didn't see more of her throughout the years. Yeah, I think this out of a lot of the nightmare movies are the ones where I feel like we had a lot of cast members that could have gone on and done much more interesting work. Um, the one thing I will say about her role is this movie that I think kind of for me, one of the complaints I have about it is that it kind of tries to have its cake and eat it too. You know, they set up Jesse as the protagonist and he is cause that's who Freddie's trying to possess. But then Lisa sort of still becomes the final girl. Right. She is still the one who saves the day. She's the one who follows Jesse to the the plant. She's the one that helps him fight back against Freddy. Again, I get Jesse has to do that on his own as well. But she's still very much in that third act kind of portrays your typical final girl. So I don't I don't think the movie quite flips it as well as it could have. I get it's 1985. I think that type of stuff is the stuff that somebody like Wes or later Wes with Kevin Williamson could have done a lot more interesting work. The kernels are there. The groundwork is there, but I don't think the movie fully accomplishes what it's trying to do there. Clue Klager and Hope Lang. This is just a, I mean, this just reminds me of what's going on in the original Elm Street. You got two powerhouse actors playing the parents. I think Clue Klager is phenomenal in this film. He is just such a, this, like, I just love his, like, this is ridiculous kind of attitude. Like, just the, the nonsense that he, he thinks it's all complete nonsense. And I just sort of love sort of his, his personality in the movie. Your thoughts on the two of them? Well, they're, they, they're perfect because they continue a thing, and it's a thing that's going to come up quite a bit in this series, the complete ineffectuality of adults in Freddy's world, right? Adults are just absolutely worthless, and they are, they're great together, they're awesome, but they are even more worthless than Nancy's parents were. Like, they're just absolutely worthless. That is not a knock on their performances. I think their performances are terrific. Can I just tell you one thing that drove me nuts about this movie, though? It's a minor thing. But you know how sometimes you watch a movie and a minor thing just sticks in your craw a little bit? The bars are still on the damn windows. 
There is no, having just bought a house, there is no way a realtor is selling that house with bars still on the windows. Those are coming off immediately. Like, I don't know why that bugged me, but it just was like, I get that you need us to realize that it's Nancy's house, but come on, man, really? Well, there's, and there's a great scene where he's trying to take them off. You know, he's trying to take them off. <laughs> and that actually, that actually almost made the bars worth it because that scene is terrific where he's trying to take them off. So, like, the payoff is actually a little bit there. I don't necessarily know that it was that well thought out, but that made me be unreasonably annoyed a little less because I, that scene where he's taking the bars off is great. Now, this may seem, for the listeners out there, this may seem like we're kind of going all over the place with the casting, but there, I'm purposely going, you know, in, in, a, in a unique order because there are certain discussions that we're going to go really deep into. And so I have to kind of just, I don't want to say just check off the boxes, but when we get to other characters, there's much deeper conversation that we're going to get into. Marshall Bell is Coach Schneider. The first one to, to, to bite it, if you will, in this film. Playing sort of the typical high school coach who he has an alternative lifestyle outside of being a, a coach at the high school. And that is mentioned by Grady when uh, Jesse and Grady are forced to do push-ups after getting into a fight on the softball field, on the baseball diamond. So uh, he's not in the movie very much, but... This is the first on-screen death that we see, which is the way this is done. It's it's absolutely terrifying, but it's happening in the real world. And we're going to this is going to be a an ongoing discussion throughout this episode that that the deaths that are happening in this movie are happening in reality. Coach Schneider's death on screen. First of all, tell me about his performance and then tell me about his on-screen death. It's a great performance. I love Marshall Bell. I'm always going to love Marshall Bell for no reason other than, I mean, he's put in a bunch of great performances, but him as the like traumatized general in Starship Troopers is such a great like five minutes of zaniness in an already zany movie. I think he's great in this. The death scene itself from a technical standpoint is pretty harrowing and and pretty affecting especially given the you know the aforementioned sort of homoerotic context and stuff like that there's a lot going on there structurally yeah it's a little weird because this movie seems to kind of flip things on the head where jesse is dreaming because it's very clear that jesse's in a nightmare right jesse is in a nightmare but the results of those nightmares are actually happening in the real world. And so it's it's a bit it's not the clearest vision for how they want these kills to work. I think if you take it in isolation, it's really terrific. But I think if you take it in context and a little broader scope, it's kind of emblematic of what are going to be some of my problems with the movie. Robert Rustler as Grady. Now, Grady, Robert Russler had just finished wrapping up uh, production in Weird Science, where he played opposite Robert Downey Jr. Uh, in the Never Sleep Again documentary, he mentions that RDJ actually gave him a, a ride to this audition. So he's playing the stereotypical jock in this film. Once again, I really like this guy. Well, I, what I love about it is he starts as the stereotypical jock, but then it turns out that, no, he's actually like a pretty decent dude 
he busts Jesse's balls, but then they kind of become friends as dudes, especially dudes in the 80s, stupidly did. I mean, that's how we made friends. And he gets, you know, he's there for Jesse. He's trying to help Jesse out when Jesse shows up at his house and is like, you can't let me sleep. He lets him stay there. Yeah, he lets him sleep. But come on. I mean, wouldn't we all like we might not now because we know Nightmare on Elm Street exists. But like, you know, wouldn't we all just be like, I'm going to stay here and stay up until my friend falls asleep because that's really what he needs. I also love I love Robert Russler. He's in two of my very favorite 80s movies. He's in an Albert Pion movie called Dangerously Close, and he's in Thrashin', which is just one of my absolute favorite 80s movies. It's the skateboarding version of Rad, and I friggin' love it. So I always have... I got time for Robert Russler in anything. Like, he shows up, I'm like, "Mm, I I got time for this. Um, And I think he's terrific in this. His his on-screen death... You know, when we were in the first episode, we were talking about sort of the the most impactful death scenes in the entire franchise and i was i was really struggling with this one this morning because the way that this this entire death is framed i mean imagine if you will he you know he wakes up jesse's screaming there's something inside me it's trying to get out it's trying to get out and he witnesses jesse basically just get ripped apart and freddie enter his bedroom and again i stress real world this is not in, this is not in a dream. This is really happening to him. There's, it's just so terrifying when he is, he is trapped in his room and he's at the door and he's screaming for his parents. He's screaming for his dad and they're on the outside and he turns around and there's Freddie. And there is that scene as Freddie's walking towards him. He nods at him. He just nods at him like, this is really happening. This is really going to happen to you. And I find it to be the most terrifying death in the entire franchise your thoughts i don't know that i would go as far as to say it's the most terrifying death in the entire franchise i still think tina in the first one is going to take that for me but it's certainly the most terrifying death in the movie and it's certainly the most affecting death in the movie yes and the and the way that it's shot it's when his parents are on the outside and you just see the the claws come through and but you you visualize what's happening to him it's just brutal so well you know we mentioned it in the first episode one of the things we're going to talk about is how the kills become they become more creative and they become funnier in a sort of ec comics sort of way but they become a lot less affecting Uh, i don't want to say they're less effective because i think there's some of them are pretty terrific but they're a lot less affecting than these earlier kills in some of these you know, some of these earlier movies where they're just, they're just brutal. And they're just, you know, you feel Grady didn't deserve that. Some of the victims in horror movies, you know, we love them because they're horrible people and you want to watch them die. Nothing about Grady deserved that. And nothing about Jesse deserved him to be in the position to make that happen. Like that's where this movie's at its best is as a real tragedy. I mean, this movie works when it's a tragedy, a tragedy of which is is why it does work as an allegory, because obviously so many people in the gay community have had tragic things happen to them. And and so much of this is just so much of it's out of their control. And I I don't know really where I'm going with this. This is, again, I'm not the best person to talk about this movie as far as this goes, but I'm with you. I think this is the this is not just the. Most brutal, most difficult kill to watch. It's one of the 
best parts of the movie because it's one of the parts where the movie is, I think, working as intended. So let's get to the <laughs> one of the more famous scenes in the movie, uh, sequences in the film, and that is the pool party scene. Uh, by this point, Jesse has... Let's well, let's just talk about Jesse's journey up until the pool party scene. You know, he has had, you know, it seems like every night more and more happens. More and more ha- is happening to him. He is witness to the coach's death. He's witness to Grady's death. He is Lisa's Lisa's having a, uh, you know, a typical 80s pool party. Her parents are there. Her parents have, you know, are going to bed and then they turn the music up and the mom is telling the dad, I'll let the kids be kids. Jesse shows up. And like you said, you mentioned like he he's he's incredibly traumatized by what happens. And, you know, I'm just kind of uh, skimming through this scene a little bit here. You know, essentially, Freddie starts to take over his body again and we get what I think is a really good buildup to something is happening at this pool party. Like it starts off, it doesn't just, he doesn't just show up. It's suddenly uh, the, the pool water gets a little warmer and, and just the buildup to this. And then he just pops out of the ground and just starts wreaking havoc. So we're going to talk about this in parts. Tell me your thoughts about, you know, just Freddie jumping up out of the ground and, and just starting to wreak havoc at this pool party. It's, it's not my favorite part. Uh, you know, when I saw it in 1985, it's actually funny. You mentioned earlier memories of when you're seven, eight or nine. I clearly remember standing in the lunch line at my elementary school with a friend who was one of the only other friends who got to watch R-rated movies and we were talking about just how so cool it was and he comes out and he's slashing people and all the kids who didn't get to watch R-rated movies were just like, meh, meh, sucks to be us. But like, (laughs) I don't love it now. And not just because of what we know Nightmare as a series to be, you know, Freddy taking this much active role in the real world i just think it takes some of the the subtlety and some of the interesting stuff and just turns it into a a rote slasher movie and that that's not what i want out of my nightmare on elm street stuff i i for me it would have worked better if it had actually been like a group dream somehow but that's obviously not where this movie was going i will say it does have an all-time great Freddy line when he says you're all my children now like that is a that's fucking classic Nightmare on Elm Street line man that is such a perfect Freddy line so I don't love it but I'll take it because it gives us that line it's interesting for a number of reasons for me one I I love the you know leading up to that part where one of the teenagers is trying to you know try to talk to him like, hey, it's okay. You know, we're here to help you. Just tell us what you want. You know, he's just like, help yourself, fucker. You know, like this, I kind of got a kick out of that. And I also love the fact that they know the parents, you know, uh, Tom McFadden and Melinda Ophelia playing Lisa's parents, like, they're not oblivious to what's going on. Like the the dad looks out and sees Freddie just wreaking havoc. And he does what you think most parents would do. He goes and gets a shotgun and he's like, I'm going to take care of this. Like, so... For, for a brief moment there, the parents really realize what's going on. But Lisa prevents her dad from shooting Freddie. Freddie walks to the, uh, to the hedges and just goes up in flames. To me, this is, if you're watching it for the first time and knowing that there's not sequels at the time this comes out, like, that's it. The cards have been laid on the table. There's 50 kids at this thing. Freddie is no longer a secret. This is no longer kept under the dark, like under wraps. Moving forward, 
you know, any other sequel, it's going to be like, oh, yeah, you remember that Freddy Krueger guy that just destroyed this pool party? Yeah, he's back. He's, he's, you know, people would know who he is. Understanding that they didn't know what they had on their hands when they were making this film, like moving forward with additional sequels, like you have to retcon that ever happening. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, that's the reason this is kind of the ignored, and I'm not saying ignored from the audience standpoint, but as people will see as we go on, you know, there is actually reasonable continuity in Nightmare on Elm Street. You go from Nightmare to Nightmare 3, 4, 5, and kind of 6, but certainly 1, 3, 4, and 5 have a relatively tight continuity. They just completely ignore 2. Uh, and they, you're right, Dana, they have to, right? They can't, nothing about this works. Nothing about the rest of the series works if Freddy kids at a pool party, like you can't have anything in the rest of the series be functional because he's out there. The secret's out there. So I agree with you. I think that's why they have to ignore it. They don't necessarily retcon it, I don't think, but they just straight up pretend like it doesn't exist so that brings us to robert england and when i was watching the never sleep again documentary i kind of fast forwarded to where they were talking about part two and you know they mentioned in in the interviews that robert england's agents had kind of gotten wise to this freddy krueger character and, and they were kind of asking for they were asking for way more money for robert england to reprise freddy than new line was willing to pay and so bob shea just said, well, you know, what do we need this guy for? You know, this, this is a guy in makeup. Anybody can do it. And uh, Jack Shoulder in the inter- in this documentary goes on to say it was apparent from day one. You know, we had made a huge mistake because we had just put some stuntman in makeup. And, you know, the, the, the case was made that going into the production of this second film, that they, they hadn't realized yet that Freddy Krueger was the face of the franchise. Yeah, it, it's pretty clear as far as that goes. Freddy's actually... And this is no slight on Robert England's performance. Freddy's actually kind of one of my lesser favorite parts of the movie. And it's because they hadn't quite figured out what he meant yet. First of all, there there are, I think, way too many close-ups of him. You know, in the first movie, he's in the shadow for most of it. So the scars and the burns are just kind of highlights that you see in the shadow. Here we get a lot of close-ups and they hadn't gotten the makeup they hadn't really gotten the look of freddy right yet like if you compare how he looks in this to how he compares in the later or how he looks in the later movies they hadn't quite gotten it which i think takes away some of his power as a a scary villain in this england i think is still great he still gives some very good performances or some very good you know deliveries like i like uh i really like you've got the body I've got the brain like the way he delivers that line is just really terrific. But it's clear that this is a transition movie, not just for the series, but for Robert England and for Freddie as a character. They haven't quite figured out what the full like go to market Freddie is going to be yet. As for his performance in the film, and I'll agree with you, the the makeup is going to change from film to film. I think it it's. It's stable between parts three and four, but then just goes all over the place with existing subsequent sequels beyond that. I still find, and and make no mistake, like, this is a joke-free, pun-free 
Freddy Krueger performance. And for that, I will rank it as my, I think, the second most terrifying version of Freddy Krueger. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, I know we're not going to rank them all, but just, just off, you know, off the cuff. What do you, what do you think? For me, I have, I really do have a hard time getting over that makeup. I, I, I mean, he's up there. He's up there for sure because he is, for the most part, very pun free. He's just too well lit in too many scenes. You know, there's the scene where he's attacking Lisa in her house and it's all brightly lit and he ends up just looking like a weird, dude in a sweater it didn't it didn't affect me as much uh, i think i don't want to like lay cards on the table but i don't think this comes close to his performance in new nightmare when we get there i think that is that would be my pick for the second sort of most terrifying freddy performance okay all right let's talk about the way in which freddy meets his demise in this film and again we have to sort of reiterate like this is a real world freddy this is a freddy that is in our reality what's interesting i just remember you know for as many times as I've seen this film, I used to tend, I, I tended to turn it off after the pool party scene when Lisa drives to the, you know, the, the big factory the, and has the, the final showdown. Like I was always just like, eh, eh, you know, not really for me. I mean, I, it's, I think it's for me one of the least interesting ways in which Freddie goes. Your thoughts? I think it works for the movie because again, it's not that interesting and it certainly goes on i think a little too long i think it would have actually almost been better if they had left it at the pool party and had the same ending she talks jesse out jesse fights back jesse through his own inner strength is able to beat freddie i think it would have been better if they just left that at the pool party uh slowing everything down by having them go to the power plant just doesn't really i i don't think it really moves the story forward in any way it's like almost like they had access to this big power plant and so damn it they were going to use it if you view this movie not as a nightmare on elm street movie but as a demonic possession movie so as something like the exorcist or uh, all the exorcist knockoffs or, you know, something like that. I think the ending works a little better. I think it doesn't work great as a Nightmare on Elm Street ending. But if you view this as a demonic possession movie, I think it's an OK ending. It's not it's not it didn't blow me away, but I think it's OK. And there's a surprisingly like putting aside the pool party scene. When we're talking about main characters or, or characters in the film, this has a surprisingly small body count. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it's even the pool. I remembered the pool party being much more violent. Like, I remembered the pool party being just this slaughter fest. And it's really not. There's really only a handful of people who actually get killed at the pool party. It, it doesn't have as many deaths i mean this is a relatively tame 80s slasher movie absolutely it certainly has some very gory practical effects which of course as you know make me a little bit squeamish and when we get into some subsequent films i'm going to get very squeamish the you know the scene in which you know Freddie comes out of Jesse's body in the uh, in Grady's bedroom as always sort of sticks with me. And of course, the, you know, the final scene where he's Freddie sort of melting away and everything compared to the first one. How would you say the uh, the special effects are? 
I think they're good. I, I there's nothing as clever as the rotating room that we get in the first one. Uh, but I think they're good. I certainly think they are a step above a lot of their, you know, it's, it's compatriots. It's, it's contemporaries. There's definitely, they're definitely doing something different here. It's, it's a much less high concept movie as far as kills and stuff like that go. But I think the special effects are are decent. I certainly don't have any complaints about them. Every one of these movies has what I'll call sort of the cold open. Uh, You have, in the original one, you have Tina walking through the hallways with the lamb. And uh, in this film, the cold open, I think is actually quite good, which is the school bus. And you don't realize, of course, they're, they're all dreams you learn later on when you go through all these movies. But you have you have Jesse on the school bus. You've got the you know the popular the popular girls, and you know the rest of the students on the bus are swept subsequently being dropped off. And it is Robert England as the bus driver. I picked that up a, a few years back. The bus just drives off into the desert. I really like this cold open. <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? I like it up until they get into the I think very poorly composited scene where the bus is on the thing and there's lightning and it's very clear. Like it became for me, horror movies that are truly scary. I need to not see the seams. It's one of the reasons I really love the first nightmare because I don't see very many seams in that movie. Like I know they had a rotating room for Tina's death, but damned if you can actually see that in the movie, you know, once I, get attention called the special effects it no longer becomes scary now for me that's not going to be a problem later on in the series because i don't think later movies are actually trying to be that scary this one's still trying to be scary and so i think it works right up until we get to that composite scene and then it kind of takes me out of it as opposed to say grady's death where Yeah, again, intellectually, I know there's special effects, but man, when Jesse's arm splits open and you see Freddy's sweater underneath it, God damn, that is a terrifying, like, image. Like, that just, and and the knives are coming out of his fingers and he's, uh, like, that is what I want to see in these movies. So, I give it a, like, a B. As far as one of the cold opens goes. All right. And let's get to the stinger. The final scene is everyone back on the school bus. Just your thoughts. I mean, <laughs> I just, I just, I, I don't even think I even chuckled. I was just like kind of rolled my eyes on that one. Where I mean, it's, it's a Bob Shea stinger. Yeah. Like it's, it, it, it's fine as far as a, I think people who listened to the last episode know I'm not a fan of the stingers in these movies. As far as stingers in these movies go, it bothered me a little bit less than the stinger in the first one. But yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a new line stinger. It's fine. I guess it, it is what it is. It almost feels like they're wrapping up. They're on their, like the, their, their last day of production. And Bob goes to Jack and says, Hey, real quick, do we still have that school bus set? I've got an idea. <laughs> like it just almost feels like that was just, like you said, it was just, just kind of shoehorned in towards the end. It really does, especially because when, and I'm blanking on her name, but when Freddie's hand comes through their friend's chest, that's actually a really mediocre special effect. Like it almost looks like a high school play special effect. So it really does kind of feel like, 
shit, we got this set and we got six hours. Let's just do something with it. You yeah. know, it, d- yeah. it just doesn't have anything that impressive, but eh, whatever. But yeah. it, it is what it is. And they just recycled the, the footage of the the bus going onto the desert. That was just recycled from the cold open. So it was probably, yeah, six hours. They nailed it. Mike, tell me some things you like about you. You like about this movie. Well, I like Jesse. I like Mark Patton. My God, I like Mark Patton. He's so good in this. I know we've already said that, but he is just absolutely terrific in this movie. I I like the cast on the whole. I, I really think that there's some good cast members doing some good work in this movie. I think they maybe bring a depth to it. You know, it's funny because the writer saying that this wasn't intentional and then changing his tune. But when he was saying it wasn't intentional, he was saying that the actors, you know, it became this gay allegory because of the actors. Dude, that's not the flex that you think it is. That's like saying that your script wasn't that good and you needed the actors to actually bring the depth to it. And I think that's a reasonable argument. I think this movie doesn't work at all if we don't get the performances from Patton and from Myers and from Rustler and Gulliger and if we don't get the performances we get I I think there's some really good stuff being done in this movie I think and I agree with you this really got my my wheels turning about you know the the principal cast for all of the films and although I'm not going to say it's my favorite principal cast for any of all the Elm Street films, I will say that it's certainly in my top three. And that's one of the things that I really like about a lot of these Elm Street films is that every character, for the most part, especially in this film and of course the the next movie, are very nuanced and very, they're not just, we have to have a stereotype of every type of teenager out there. They are all very believable in their roles. You mentioned that Grady at first comes across as the jock, as the jock, but it, he's actually a very good guy. So it almost says, "Yep, here's the stereotypicals, but we're going to break down those stereotypes and show you that these are these are real individuals that you can truly relate to." And that happens in a couple other Elm Street films, but it's very effectively done in this film. So I agree with you that, yes, the, the cast in this one is is terrific. I know we've talked about a lot of things we do like, but is there anything else you want to highlight before we get into some some uh, disappointments about the movie? No, I mean, I think I've pretty much hit on on the other stuff I like. Obviously, like I said, you're all my children now. It's just an that's an all time Freddy line. I mean, that that. You know, from the the nerd standpoint of liking these as horror movies, that's just such a beautiful line. And, and like I said, I think in addition to it being a, a gay allegory, I think it really works well as a metaphor or an allegory for schizophrenia, too. And, and it's relatively sensitive as far as that goes for a movie made in 1985. So I'm, I'm going to give it a little credit for that as well. What, if any, disappointments do you have with this film? I really hit on the big one. I actually think Freddy's a disappointment in this one. I, I That's not a slight on Robert England's performance at all. I think he's great. I think he's still kind of trying to figure out what Freddy is. But I think that he's just – he's way too lit. It, it, it was driving me nuts throughout so much of the movie because, again, they hadn't figured out the makeup. And he doesn't – Freddy doesn't cut the same imposing presence – in the real world 
that somebody like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees does, where they're these actual monsters, right? Robert England's not a big dude. And so if you're not giving him that dramatic dream lighting and all of that sort of weird stuff, you've just got him fighting a girl in what looks like my parents' fucking living room. He's not that, like, intimidating anymore. And and so that that was really what kind of bothered me about the movie. The other big thing is just I think its aspirations, its reach is bigger than its grasp. I don't think it quite nails everything it it tries to do it gets it gets look i'll give this movie serious points for effort but i think it still falls short of what it's trying to do i'm gonna have a slight disagreement about freddie in this film i think that he is in in some scenes i I see what you're saying uh especially about the really well-lit scenes but there are some scenes in this film where i am still just terrified by him and do find him to be very very intimidating almost on the level of the first film i cite the scene where you know grady's in the kitchen he looks out and you know freddie's kind of this is towards the beginning of the film he's kind of just walking in the shadows back there it's because in my mind i know that freddie knows exactly what he's doing you know whereas like a jason Voorhees maybe just be aimlessly walking around the woods of crystal lake the entire time i feel like freddie has complete control of what his plan is and so i think he as you would to coin a phrase you said i think he's playing with his food and in in with jesse throughout the duration of the first two acts of this film and it really really gets under my skin so i don't have a freddy problem in this film but i do you know go ahead i'm sorry no i was just gonna say you know what you're right for the first two thirds of this film now that you said that what it really makes me realize is i don't like third act Freddy in this movie. I think first two acts, Freddy, are rock solid and really terrifying. So I'm going to agree with you for like that scene you just mentioned. Man, you're totally right. He's great in that. And, and I mentioned some other ones where like he's tormenting Jesse and stuff. But when we get to the pool party in the third act, that's really what it boils down to is I don't like the third act, Freddy, of this movie. But I do agree with you that prior to that, he's pretty goddamn good. And that's the thing, because um, I like I mentioned, like this is once the pool party scene is over with, this is a, a, a shut the f- shut the movie off for me. Because I'm just like, ah. the first two thirds, the first two acts are very, very effective. The third act kind of falls off a cliff a little bit for me after the pool party scene. Is there any other uh, disappointments you want to add to the list? No, I don't think so. I, I think we've, I, and I don't want people to feel like I'm really kicking this movie because I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. So no, I, I, I think I'll leave it at that. For me, you know, if I was putting together, trying to put together a list of disappointments and, and what's interesting is, is, you know, obviously throughout the 35 plus years that this film has come out, I have gone through numerous reevaluations of this film. And I was, I was trying to write down some disappointments for re, me, really, I think just the final 15 minutes of the film are, are, are a big letdown for me. Other than that, no, I think we've covered most of it. So, so Mike, I will ask you, would you recommend 1985's A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge? So I'm going to give it a soft recommend. I'm going to give it a, a solid, but a, a, a slight recommendation. I think that for me, the movie left me a little bit cold. And, and that may or may not be surprising to people listening to this because it didn't do a ton for me. But that being said... I think Mark Patton is so absolutely terrific in this. And I think the movie does try and do 
some interesting things that maybe later sequels aren't as interested in. And so for that, I am going to give it, it, it's not even close to my favorite nightmare. It's certainly not the same level of recommendation that I gave part one, but I am going to recommend it. I think it's worth checking out. This was one of my recommendations on the 20th Century Movie Club about this time last year. So I'm going to recommend this because I think the good stuff, if I'm, if I'm doing a scale, I think the what's good about this movie definitely outweighs the disappointments of this film enough so that I could I can easily recommend this film not only as an Elm Street film but just as a uh, a very you know good horror movie of the 1980s which is a, a part sort of breaks the mold of the typical slasher film that was coming out around this time so yeah this is a recommend for me it's not a Elm Street Part 1 recommend, but it is definitely a recommend, a recommend because, like I said, the, the good stuff outweighs the disappointing stuff. And you are right. I mean, it really does try and, at least as far as the mainstream slashers, your Fridays and stuff like that, uh, it really does try and do some different stuff. And I think that alone is commendable and 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 makes it worth checking out. You may not love it, like, you may watch it and be like, eh, it doesn't quite work for me, which is how I feel about it. But I'm still glad I rewatched it. Like, I'm glad we did this because I hadn't rewatched it in decades. And I'm, I'm glad I rewatched it. I'm not mad I did it. We're, uh, we're two down. We have seven more to go. So, Mike, we're on to, uh, we're on to the third episode coming up. This should, this should be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. I, again, I don't want to put my cards on the table, but I am excited yeah, for this. There's definitely a lot to talk about. So people want to follow you on social media. How can they do that? You can find me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. You can also find me at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will also find my continually updating list of the 20th Century Movie Club recommendations we've made. We've got a lot of 20th Century Movie Club movies coming out. Dana, again, I want to thank you for kind of letting me take the reins on that and go forward because I think we've had a lot of good guests and we've got way more in the pipeline. You can also follow my new show, Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. You can follow that at Adkins Podcast on Twitter and you can find that pretty much anywhere podcasts are streaming. I highly recommend the the Adkins Undisputed podcast. I listened to your introduction episode and, you know, I was just smiling, just listening to you sort of talk about how you discovered Scott Atkins. So I, again, and there's links in this episode show notes for you to, to quickly find that podcast, but I really enjoy what you're doing there and I'm excited to keep listening. I can't wait to, to see where, where this podcast goes. If you want to follow this show on Twitter, you can do so at Dana Buckler show. You can follow me on Twitter at real Dana Buckler. You can follow the show on Instagram at the Dana Buckler show. You can you can always email us at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. So, Mike, we are on to part three. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Thank you, as always, for being a part of the show. Thank you, my friend. Always love it. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.